The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, news from Haiti, where a mob in Port-au-Prince killed 13 gang members and then burned their bodies in the street. Amy Willens will report. But first, Ukraine eyewitness. Anatole Levin is back after three weeks there. We'll have his comments and analysis in a minute. Anatole Levin spent three weeks in Ukraine recently. He's back now with his report. He's a former war correspondent and director of the Quincy Institute's Eurasia program. He's the author of the book, Ukraine and Russia. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. We reached him today in England. Anatole Levin, welcome back. Thank you, nice to be back. Well, where in Ukraine did you go and how much of the war did you see? Uh, I went uh, to Kiev, to the um, towns north of Kiev, uh, Bucha, Irpin, Borodyanko, which were where the fighting was and which were partly occupied by Russia at the start of the war 13 months ago. I went to the city of Dnipro in central Ukraine and to Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine. Most of Zaporizhia province is occupied by the Russians, but the city is still in Ukrainian hands. The front line runs about 20 miles to the south. And um, there I had an accident, which was nothing to do with the war. Uh, I just fell over. Um, but I spent a week in hospital in Zaporizhia. Uh, so I was there for 10 days altogether. And that gave me a chance actually to observe the progress of the Russian air campaign uh, against one Ukrainian city. Tell so, us about what you saw from that perspective. The air campaign uh, against uh, most of Ukraine uh, has been far less effective and far less destructive than I think is generally perceived uh, in the West. Now, that, of course, is not true of uh, places like Bakhmut or Mariupol, uh, where there has been heavy fighting on the ground. But those cities were destroyed in, in ground fighting with artillery bombardments uh, over you know, weeks or months. But quite frankly, I mean, in Kiev uh, and Dnipro, and even to, to some extent in Zaporizhia, uh, if you were an unwary visitor who wasn't, you know, especially looking out for, for damage, it would be possible to visit them and not know <laughs> that a war was going on. That's partly because there have been far fewer Russian missile attacks. It, it's not, you know, that the Western media um, falsifies anything exactly. It's just that, well, I used to be a journalist myself. You, you concentrate on where something has happened. But it's quite striking, for example, that in these cities, you know, if you take a picture of a, a destroyed building, you don't take a picture of all the buildings around it, which are in fact undamaged. And so there is a, an impression of much greater damage. Um, but it's also that, which could change, by the way, if, if it's true, as the leaks from the Pentagon uh, suggested that the Ukrainians are running out of anti-aircraft missiles. But uh, in recent months, the Ukrainians have been very effective at shooting down Russian missiles. Uh, but also the Russian missiles have been extremely inaccurate. And uh, I have described you know, how you can clearly see what the Russians were aiming at. Um, and you can see that they missed and hit something else instead. <laughs> that also makes it quite difficult to say often, you, you know, when the Russians have actually deliberately bombarded 
purely civilian targets, blocks of flats and so forth. And um, when it is what the United States in such circumstances would call collateral damage. In other words, they were aiming at, uh, from their point of view, at least a legitimate target, uh, which of course for the United States has always included civilian infrastructure, bridges, power stations and so forth. Um, and when they missed and hit something else, uh, or in one case I saw seemingly the Russian missile was brought down by a, a Ukrainian air defense missile. That's one thing. Um, secondly, uh, up to now, the uh, effect of the Russian bombardment on the Ukrainian economy has been limited. Um, the Ukrainians have also, with our help, become very good at repairing uh, damaged electricity infrastructure, which is mostly what the Russians have been aiming at. And uh, the population is certainly not intimidated. In fact, I mean, if one remembers the Second World War, you know, when population stood up to infinitely higher levels of bombardment, I mean, frankly, all the Russian bombardment has done is to infuriate people uh, and, of course, contribute in the Russian speaking areas. And Dnipro and still more Zaporizhia have traditionally been Russian speaking, and at least until 2014. Um, large majorities regularly voted for pro-Russian candidates. Uh, that has now vanished. I mean, I found a, a good many people who off the record uh, expressed hopes that the war would end and doubts about complete Ukrainian victory. I, I did not find a single, not one person who had any sympathy for Putin, for the Russian government, for the Russian invasion, for the Russian armed forces. And, you know, I mean, that is the effect of being bombarded for a year, even if the bombardment was relatively ineffective. And and what is li life like for uh, ordinary people, say, in Kiev? Uh, life continues pretty much as normal. Uh, food prices are high. I mean, I had a lot of people complaining uh, about that, but there's no lack of food. Um, you know, the shops are full. I mean, and the shops for ordinary people. Public transport works. Um, everybody ignores the air raid sirens. Um, I went to the ballet in the evening. It was packed. I wow. bought a couple of tickets. And I have to say, uh, which I think could play a, a part in politics in future, um, the wealthy of Kiev are still very much living the high life. Very, very, very expensive restaurants, um, which are still very, you know, heavily frequented. You know, I visited one luxury food store um, with uh, 106, I think, uh, different kinds of champagne and Prosecco, <laughs> wow. and the most expensive bottle for $600. Wow. That doesn't go down very well, you can imagine, with the, uh, the returning veterans. Uh, from the army. And I think that could be a, a you know, resentment of the Kiev elites. We're told that the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian military remains high. I wonder if you saw any signs of war weariness among the civilians, any young men avoiding military service or concern about that, any cynicism about the war and the leadership? Not openly talking to me, I mean, uh, among some journalists, yes, but uh, I mean, I have to say that, that there is a definite mood of fear of speaking your mind openly on these subjects, unless you agree unconditionally with the government line. Uh, certainly the wounded soldiers I talked to 
went you know, out of their way to stress high morale and determination to fight to the end. Uh, but on the other hand, I did hear in Kiev that there, uh, there are sites on the, um, the, the online chat service Telegram where, you know, it, it's a bit like the, um, service, the chat services on roads where you can hear about police, uh, you know, speed checks, where young men tip each other off about where uh, the military authorities are conducting raids to round up young men of military age. Uh, and tip each other off so that they can avoid those areas and escape, which of course argues that, um, as as we all know, enthusiasm for a war is one thing. Enthusiasm to fight in a war yourself can be a very different thing. Yes. So I would say that uh, a willingness to to serve is by no means unanimous, though uh, undoubtedly there there is still a, a a great determination to fight on among the majority of Ukrainians. The New York Times on Tuesday published a big front page report on Ukraine's plans for a counteroffensive this spring. According to the Times, everything hinges on this counteroffensive. Ukraine hopes to break through Russian defenses and create a widespread collapse in Russia's army. Russia, of course, has more planes, more tanks, more artillery, more soldiers. Ukraine has a lot of new equipment now from the United States and Europe, newly trained troops. Soldiers, of course, are more motivated, a lot more motivated. Ukraine has surprised everyone in the past with their military success. What do you think are the chances of them succeeding with the spring counteroffensive? I must say, I've become very cautious about predicting what happens on the battlefield because, you know, we've all been, including me, I have to say, proved wrong again and again. Uh, and the Ukrainians, yes, I mean, have surprised us. Uh, so um, I think we we have to wait and, and, and see. Uh, but undoubtedly, I mean, this, this offensive will be very important because uh, if the Ukrainians break through, then it could have major political re uh, repercussions in Russia. But you will then have, I think, a real clash in the West between hardliners who say, now go on for complete victory, and others in Europe, but also, you know, by all accounts within the Biden administration, who will say, no, now, you know, Ukraine has recaptured most of what it's lost since last year. Now the time has come to stop and negotiate. And that's also, of course, because um, of this fear, which I think is well based, that uh, if Ukraine goes on and tries to um, recapture Crimea, the Russians probably will escalate radically. Not straight to nuclear war, but um, you know, would begin a ladder of escalation that could well end in nuclear war. On the other hand, if the Ukrainian offensive fails, then the Times article you cited says this, that there will undoubtedly be voices in Europe and also uh, in the United States who will say, this can't go on forever. Are we going to back the Ukrainians to attack and attack? There will also, I think, be some military analysts who will say, by letting the Ukrainians wear themselves out in this way, we are risking a much bigger defeat for them in future. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians fail completely and the Russians counterattack, then um, you will undoubtedly have voices, you know, including from Eastern Europe, who will say, oh, now you know, we must save the Ukrainians by intervening directly. So there are opportunities for peace, or at least for a ceasefire, but there are also some 
you know, immense potential dangers down the road. Now, if Ukraine does succeed with its counteroffensive, does that mean that Vladimir Putin will sue for peace, will come to the negotiating table seeking a ceasefire or uh, a compromise? Putin certainly knows this is coming and is preparing for it. What do we know about his thinking at this point? Well, we know very little. What we can say for sure uh, is that neither Putin nor any conceivable Russian regime, and by that, to judge by his previous statements, I would include Alexei Navalny, uh, should he, in an extremely unlikely scenario, become president. None of them will give up Crimea. Uh, they would fight to the end to keep Crimea. And it would be, all, I would say, very nearly impossible to give up the eastern Donbass unless the Ukrainians have already conquered it. So what Russia might be brought to accept would be a ceasefire that froze the existing front lines achieved by a Ukrainian counteroffensive, or you know, possibly uh, the existing front lines if a counteroffensive fails. But of course, the Ukrainian government and um, well, and now you know the, the latest um, proposed motion of the uh, U.S. Uh, Congress, if you've been following this, uh, has called for total uh, Russian withdrawal from all the territory that Russia has uh, occupied or, or backed since 2014. In other words, Russia must leave Crimea and the Donbas. Well, and the Ukrainian government has. Uh, repeatedly said that that is non-negotiable. Uh, although sometimes Ukrainian officials have hinted that in the end it, it may have to be negotiable. Certainly a good many ordinary Ukrainians think it will have to be negotiated. Just to review a little of the history of Crimea, was part of Russia transferred from Russia to Ukraine in 1954 by Khrushchev, just as a decree. For 60 years then, it was part of Ukraine, since 2014, Russia has occupied Crimea. That's nine years. A lot of ethnic Russians live there. Can you imagine a ceasefire, an end to the fighting with Crimea part of Ukraine again? No. I, I can, I suppose, just about imagine a total collapse of the Russian army. It's not at all likely, but, you know, we've seen that. In the past, many people make parallels um, with the First World War, and in the First World War, uh, in the end, every army, except the British, at one stage or another collapsed, including, of course, the Russian. So it is, I suppose, imaginable that that that, that could, could happen. But uh, I, I think that at that point, I mean, so many Russians have said to me, one Russian think tank, guy who was always in, in previously, uh, you know, considered one of the pro-Westerners has said that, look, America will you would certainly use nuclear weapons to defend Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. And in the very last resort, we should be willing to use nuclear weapons to defend Crimea and Sevastopol. A lot of people don't know about the American Congress's recent stand on this. Tell us a little more about that and its uh, implications. Well, it isn't uh, as yet uh, a stand as such. I mean, it hasn't, hasn't been voted in. But there is a resolution before Congress 
which would uh, essentially demand that the United States uh, commit itself to the existing Ukrainian government line, that all Ukrainian territory lost since 2014, including Crimea and Eastern Donbass, must go back to Ukraine, and that this is non-negotiable. In other words, that America must commit itself to total victory over Russia. Well, I mean, that means either war without end, I mean, literally war with no conceivable end in sight, uh, or a truly, truly serious risk uh, of nuclear war. And, of course, if it were seriously adopted by a US government, it would imply that the US should commit its own armed forces to pursue this end, since it's probably only through that that the Ukrainians could actually achieve this. Uh, but, uh, of course, this is also, um, quite apart from it being uh, you know, extremely bad in this particular case, uh, th this is a truly terrible example of Congress having absolutely no responsibility for the results, of course, of its of its votes, trying to tie an administration's hand in ways that makes serious diplomacy impossible. And of course, if this does lead to disaster, well, I mean, if it leads to complete disaster, um, we won't any of us need to worry about it because we'll all be dead. But even if it leads to more limited disaster, of course, all the people in Congress who have voted for this will act as if the resulting disaster had nothing to do with them. And I'm very sure that all the Republicans who vote for it will, of course, blame the entire disaster on the Biden administration, because that's what Congress does. It is a terrible way to run a railroad. Anatole Lieben, you can read his article, The Rise and Role of Ukrainian Ethnic Nationalism, at thenation.com. Anatole, thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The news from Haiti is not good. Seems like it never is. But for the latest, we turn to Amy Willens. She's written about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family. But she's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell Fred Voodoo. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem bureau chief for The New Yorker, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. We always start by reminding our listeners why we care about Haiti. 
not just because it's a desperately poor country, but because Haiti had the first slave revolution in the 1790s, the largest slave uprising since Spartacus, inspired by the French Revolution, and it established the world's first black republic. It's been punished by France and the United States pretty much ever since, and Haiti, of course, is still in crisis. But what's the current situation in the capital, Port-au-Prince? Right now, it's extremely tense. A couple of days ago, um, the people in a sort of downtown uh, neighborhood that goes from middle class to quite poor came out of their houses in the poorer neighborhoods and fought back against gangsters who had come in to take over that part of the, the area. And they killed, uh, I think it was nine members of the gang. It's a very powerful gang. So this morning... We're speaking on Monday. A busload of armed men in civilian clothes was coming down uh, deeper into the neighborhood, presumably to avenge their slain members. Of, they bus jacked the bus. They got on the bus with all their arms and they came into the neighborhood and the police stopped them. Two armed policemen stopped them and they scrambled out of the bus, I guess. And the population knew that they were coming somehow. And the population proceeded to attack them and disarm them somehow and kill them all. 13 people, presumably all members of this gang, but who knows. And then they burned their bodies. There's a stunning video on WhatsApp. I don't know what's out on the American media, if anything. The videos show the population chasing these guys. Then it, they show the men on the ground, they seem to all be dead. Then you see a little man walking toward this pile of bodies with a, a jerry can of gasoline and tires are being thrown on top of the bodies. And then they light it on fire. And then you see they're not all positively dead. There's still some of them are burned a lot. Meanwhile, you can see the cops, two cops with AR-15s standing, watching the proceedings. But the cops are really under attack from the gangs, too, so they're not happy. And there is a rumor, a very strong rumor going around now, that a, a government drone, which has never been heard of before in Haiti, so I'm a little reluctant to spread this rumor, but that a government drone has been watching the gang's movements and that they alerted the population to the Iran. Wow. The government using the people against the gangs because the government is so unable to deal with this. The AP reported that this, the leader of this gang is accused of helping kidnap 17 U.S. missionaries in October 2021, and it's also linked to this assassination of Moise. President Moise, that's still a, an open question who killed him. So you can link uh, the guy who leads this, his name is Dijalom Innocent, which means vital man, innocent. It's just his name, but I'm just translating he runs a gang, I believe it's called Timakak, which means little monkey, but it's kind of creepy at the same time. And they're the ones who've been creating havoc. And the police actually did sort of push them out of a richer neighborhood farther up the mountain that backs Port-au-Prince uh, recently. So this is all part of a kind of messing war between this big gang and the police of Haiti. The police are not winning, by the way. Police are not winning. And your article for thenation.com reports on an increasing wave of kidnappings for ransom. Yes. We are not sure why this is. There, there can be many reasons for this, but there's one 
thing that looms sort of large in my mind, which is that the Canadians and to a much lesser extent, the American governments have um, sanctioned a number of really the biggest machers in Haiti, the, the richest men uh, in Haiti, and then a couple of smaller ones, also Villa Minoson, I believe, and uh, another gang leader of a, of a very large gang. And so they maybe are not getting the kind of money coming into them, the gangs, that they are used to, because those are the guys who've been running the gangs. Yeah, let, let me ask you a little more about those. You say these gangs are not just gangs of the American uh, street variety. There are rich businessmen behind them? Yes, they are also uh, the biggest businessmen of Haiti. They can get things into the country that other people can't get into the country i.e. arms and ammunition, and those big businessmen, one of them has his own port that he constructed, we don't know why, but probably to avoid having to pay uh, taxes to the Haitian government at the port. So they run these gangs to have control over turf and various products and transportation and politics. There are a lot of factions involved, and I think that the, so the kidnappings for ransom are lower level uh, ways of funding these gains. This brings us to the role of the United States and President Joe Biden. What is President Joe Biden's policy in Haiti? My theory is it's the policy of no policy because he doesn't want to have a policy because he doesn't want to be responsible for whatever the heck might happen in Haiti. And the Americans really, it's like a, a little firework in their hands every time they go near it things happen in Haiti that they don't expect because they don't know the country very well because the people they've been dealing with all these years are the big businessmen that just recently bothered to sanction some of them. So they're sort of complicit in the whole problem. Plus, they've been supporting this ineffective, really, it should be brought up before the court at The Hague, de facto prime minister, no constitutionality to his existence in that role. We no. are speaking of Ariel Henry who has proceeded to finish off the work of his predecessor, Jovenel Moise, the president who was assassinated in the summer of 2021, of dismantling the entire Haitian government. 13 people killed on the street, and he doesn't go on the radio and say, this is bad, or this is great, thank you, population, for killing the criminals. Now I don't have to put them in our jails and bring them before our non-existent courts. I'm sure that pretty much everybody in Haiti would rather be in the United States. And I understand there's a new American process to get Haitians permission to enter. What, what's the story here? For some reason, it's called a parole process, as though they all were in prison, which they are effectively. It's made it much easier for Haitians. You'll like the list. Haitians, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans to get out of their country. What it does is allow Haitians who have someone in the United States to back them to get out. Now, any Haitian who has someone in the United States to back them is already a Haitian who would be useful to have in Haiti when and if Haiti can get control of the situation. So once they all leave, it's like a brain drain. It's like encouraging a brain drain. I'm not against it because I want every individual Haitian to live. But it is a little bit of a policy of no policy. Haitians are very excited. There have been riots in front of the immigration building in Port-au-Prince for people to get passports. You have to have a passport already before you can get okay from the State Department. 
And I understand that the official goal of Ariel Henry and the United States is to hold democratic elections in Haiti within the year. This is the sort of thing the Americans love, you know, elections show a country is democratic. But is this really a good idea, given what you've told us about the situation in the streets? Of course, it's not a good idea. It's impossible. And uh, the Haitians have realized that the elections the Americans have been sponsoring for the past 10 years, 13 years since the earthquake, have not exactly been the most democratic elections. They've been fiddled and, you know, the numbers jiggled and Hillary Clinton putting her finger on the electoral scale. And um, and it's given us this just horrible succession of people down to the grave with Moise and then Ariel Henry, who's kind of below the grave. He barely exists to allow Haiti to go into this morass of, of chaos. For the last couple of years, when we check in with you, you've told us about a broad alliance of democratic forces called the Montana Group. And this is not because they meet in the big sky country, I understand. Does the Montana Group still exist, given all of the kidnappings and people going into exile? And what, what, what are the chances now that their plan might help? Well, they still exist. I'm sure many of them have been kidnapped and come out of kidnapping or not, but they still exist. And it is a a broad organization. It sort of exists beyond the usual horrendous class difficulties of Haiti um, and color difficulties in Haiti. But, you know, it's got its elite wing and it's got its grassroots wing. And it's the Americans have been understandably wary of it because it's very democratic, (laughs) has too many moving parts and the Americans have not felt comfortable with it. So they haven't put their finger. Haitians hate it when I talk like this, by the way. But the Americans are so crucial to what is happening in Haiti, what has happened and what will happen. And it's not just the Americans. It's the whole core group, which is includes the Dominican Republic, but it's largely France, Canada, the U.S. You would say that they're the traditional enemies of Haiti, but they think of themselves as the traditional friends of Haiti, the U.N., And they need to come down on one side or another. They need to find a way out of this. They keep trying to push Henri and Montana together, but Henri doesn't really want that because the people he deals with don't want that because they don't want to lose the power that they have because he's a vacuum, because he's an empty cipher. They have power. You spoke with the former U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, who resigned in protest against U.S. policies in September 2021. What did he tell you? Dan thought it would matter if the U.S. Special Envoy resigned publicly in protest against U.S. policy. Little did he know Haiti. Little did he know the U.S. and Haiti. I mean, he does. He knows everything. He said that um, the U.S. is holding 12 million Haitians hostage in Haiti today under Ariel Henry. We've talked about the Americans. I understand that Russia's foreign ministry recently declared that Russia was ready to help the Haitians restore stability, and Russia was happy to train personnel. What's this about? Russians are so democratically minded. (laughs) You know, it feels very cynical. Look at the U.S. They grew up so badly with their little neighbor, Haiti, to the south, they kicked us out of Cuba. What the heck? And <laughs> we can help them. We can help the Haitians get away from these gangs by sending in the Wagner, as I think of them, the Wagner mercenaries. 
You know, I never heard of the Wagner mercenaries until about two weeks ago. They are mercenaries who uh, have been operating in Ukraine on behalf of the Russians and who most famously, and this is why John heard of them, killed some guy they captured with a hammer. That's what we need in Haiti, don't you think, Haitians? But, you know, there's a growing feeling of in Haiti <laughs> that's always there under the surface of like, don't give these uh, anti-democratic criminals a trial of five years in prison and then, you know, appeal. No, just execute them uh, extra constitutionally on the street, extrajudicially on the street. There is that growing feeling because that's the problem is so out of hand. I imagine that the Russians offering to come to Haiti to help would get the Americans' attention. I don't think so. First of all, I don't think the Americans really think it's going to happen. As far as I can see, there was no response from the Americans. And the Americans are there in Haiti right now. There's no question about it. If you have a drone in the hands of the Haitian government, the Americans taught them how to use it and gave it to them, or the Canadians, or the French, or the UN. Someone did that. There's been certainly some advances in strategizing about moving gangs out of various places. And I believe that's also on teams of advisors, that kind of thing. But there's been no public display of support for anyone by the U.S. So do you see any hopeful signs for the near or distant future of Haiti? Well, I hate to say hopeful when it includes murder of people my son's age in the street and the burning of their corpses. But I think it's a hopeful sign. I hate to say it. I mean, I look at them, I see a, a young man running with fire on his bank and back. And I think my son, that could be my son. Mm. You don't know how they got to be thought of as a gang member or are, why they are a gang member. You have to keep your humanism alive here. But I still think it's good that the population is saying no you can't do this to us and putting their lives on the line really in the face of these people but i don't know how far that can go because if you're a person with a machete you might die in this in this confrontation and unless you have another 60 people with machetes you won't win and even if you have another 60 people with machetes some of you are going to die before you get their guns loaded so i don't know how how desperate the haitian people really are but they in, in the nation, you talked about the UN's recent appointment of a new independent human rights expert in Haiti, William O'Neill. What was that about? Uh, Bill O'Neill has been on the Haiti scene for a really long time. He uh, is a human rights expert. He actually knows something about Haiti. I'm, I think I think little things are happening in Washington that may, might matter. I think this is a really important appointment, I hope it is. And so maybe that's the Biden administration trying to sort of sub rosa make a difference without committing itself to anything. And uh, I have a lot of hope from Bill because um, previous people there have not been very good. And then you mentioned another actor on the scene named Jonathan Powell. What's that about? So Jonathan Powell worked with Tony Blair for a long time uh, when Tony Blair was at 10 Downing Street. And then uh, he's become a sort of global maestro of conflict resolution. And he runs a, a consulting firm that does this. And he somehow, maybe at the suggestion of the State Department, 
was called in as like a doctor of conflict resolution for on the Haitian scene recently. And he put some people together to talk to each other, to try to work things out. But apparently Haiti has managed to also resist Jonathan Powell's medications and mediation. Seems like it's only worse. And I believe that the gangs and their masterminds don't want this conflict resolved, no matter the expense. Amy Willens, she wrote about Haiti for thenation.com, where her piece is titled, Soon There Will Be No One Left to Kidnap. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.